you haven't already, you can go ahead and turn to Psalm 27. Uh, my name is Nick Runlet. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are going to be finishing our series in the Psalms this morning. We're actually jumping back, as you may have noticed. We were in Psalm 33 last week, and this morning we'll be in Psalm 27. So if you're real specific about your notes, I hope you saved a page, a few pages back. Um, but not with intention by us either. As, as I was kind of working through this text, the last text I got to preach was Luke chapter 12. And Jesus says to his followers in Luke chapter 12, fear not, little flock. And the questions that David opens with here in Psalm 27.1 are, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? So you may not be surprised that a major theme in the scriptures is the theme of fear, because we are a, a people whose hearts are very prone to fear, to live in fear, to think fearful thoughts, to be consumed by fear. Just in the English language alone, there are so many words that describe fear, spooked, terrified, anxious, nervous, haunted, scared, afraid, panicked, petrified, I mean, so many words we use to describe this one emotion, really, of fear. So with that many words to point to one common emotion, clearly it's not an isolated thing. This is not just random people that struggle with fear or, or live in fear. Fear is one of the most frequent emotions that you and I experience. It's an emotion that drives the majority of people. So many counseling situations come out of some type of fear. Or the situation they're in is because of how they respond to fear. Our fears communicate so much to us. They communicate that something we think is important is under threat, is being threatened, and so we fear. Or we might lose something. Something bad might happen to something we care about or someone we care about, so we fear. We can't control things, and so we fear. We can't control the next few minutes, and so we can be prone to live in fear. But what do you fear most? What do we fear most this morning? What are some of the things that you fear? What are the what-if scenarios that you work through most often that you replay in your head over and over again? I'm going to have a lot of things up here on the screen, and there are a lot more that we could think through. Things like losing control, losing people you love, losing security, comfort, savings, watching your health decline or the health of the people you love, what your marriage might look like, what your kids might turn out like. You may fear rejection or people's opinion or just failure, wasting your life. Good old FOMO, right? The fear of missing out, uh, seeing what everyone else is doing. And so social media obviously only enlivens this, right? We feel like we're our life isn't like everybody else's life. We feel like we're missing something. We don't quite have what everyone else has. They must be completely happy with their life and how things are going. And we're missing that. Whatever fear consumes you or fears you think about most often, I think our fears are helpful indicators of what you actually value. What you hold high and love most. It can show you, through your fear, what you value. If we value comfort, we will fear physical pain. So we'll do all we can to avoid physical pain. If we fear 
if we value comfort, we will do all we can to avoid losing our escapes, our entertainment, our me time. If we value the approval of others, we'll fear being criticized. If we value love, we will fear rejection. If we value admiration for being attractive, we will fear gaining weight. Right? Whatever you think you need or value highly can often be seen through what you fear. Now, we don't know the exact circumstances that David is in as he writes this psalm, but clearly it's not a time of peace in his life. There are opposition and turmoil in his life. Uh, he talks about an enemy that's around him and camping around him. So there are a lot of things, even within this one psalm, and we know David's life is full of lots of other things that he could be fearful of. But in this one psalm, he could be fearful of death, of torture and suffering, of rejection, of his reputation being destroyed as people attack him with their words, as he's lied about, about being isolated and alone. And that's just, again, from what we see here in Psalm 27. Whatever the circumstances and the reasons he could be crippled by fear, we get a glimpse into the trust he has in God despite what is happening, despite what's going on in him and around him. So we get a faithful response of a child of God through this psalm, which I think is so helpful for us to have these types of responses to what could be crippling fear. And maybe it's even just David trying to remind himself of what is true. We don't know for sure, but it could just be him needing to remind himself of what he believes, even in the midst of not believing it or struggling to believe it. But we do see in the words of this psalm a confidence in the Lord. This psalm points us to confidence in our Lord as you face the difficulties of life, as you seek his face, and as you wait on him. And we'll kind of work through those three sections. As you face the difficulties of life, as you seek his face, and as you wait on him. First, there's confidence in the Lord as you face the difficulties of life. And we see this several places in the psalm. Again, this isn't like a narrative or a letter where we're going to break this down into sections, but we see the difficulties of David's life several places here. In verses 2 and 3, verse 11 and 12, he talks about these enemies around him who are speaking lies against him, who want to destroy him. And the, the confidence David has clearly doesn't remove the situation. It doesn't change the circumstance, remove the threat, or his reputation is restored, or he has safety, right? But He's reflecting on real enemies. And as we see often from the psalmist, there's a threat from without, even though we may not know exactly what that is. And then there's also over and over again a threat from within that the psalmist reflects upon. But more so here, it seems to be from without. And he reminds himself of what is ultimate. Verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. So the Lord is his light in the darkness, his salvation in all his trouble, and his true comfort in conflict, true safety. Now darkness makes us weak, it makes us vulnerable. In the Bible, it's associated with disorder before God brings order to chaos in the darkness, out of darkness. 
It's confusion. It can lead to all sorts of evil. We're called to flee from the darkness and bring it into the light, run to the light. Those of you that have ever tried to navigate a child's room in the dark, your feet know the dangers of darkness, right? The evils of darkness. Uh, Just last week, our three-year-old was crying in his room, and I went in there and never know what to expect when you walk into a, a room, but his fear at that moment was that there was a T-Rex in his room. We had, they'd read a T-Rex book the night before, I think, with, with Joyce, and so he thought there was a T-Rex in his room. And the only thing, I know, isn't that sad, but the only thing that <laughs> calmed him and allowed him to actually go back to sleep was me to put on the light, show him that there, in fact, was no T-Rex in the room, and he was able to go to sleep and calm down. Right? The light cast out the fear. The knowledge of God, our light, comforts us in the darkness. He is our light. He is our light source. When we can't see anything, when we are restless, when we're unsure, when we're struggling, when we're terrified, quite honestly, or fearful, he is, the joy is found in him as our light. The Lord who created light with a word shines into our darkness gives us a salvation and a safety and a rescue. And he doesn't just give us salvation. He is our salvation. He is our rescue. He is our safety. It isn't just something that he deposits to us. He gives us himself. We find refuge and safety in him, in knowing him, in the person of Jesus and in our Lord and Father. He's also a stronghold in verse 1. So he provides protection from our enemies. He truly is the refuge we should run to when the sins of others attack us and when our own sins try to hijack us, we run to him. And so to those statements of fact that David starts out with, he asks these questions that even as you read through, I think you, you know they deserve an obvious answer, right, in verse 1. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Well, the answer to these questions is a resounding no one. No enemy, no attacker, either from outside or from within. No darkness can keep out this light. No struggle can stop his salvation. No enemy can overthrow his protection. So David is so confident in his light, in his salvation, his stronghold, that even if an army were to encamp around him, So he lays out, some of this we know is actually true of David's life, but I think this scenario here, he's kind of showing us the worst possible scenario for him, that he's surrounded by an enemy that wants to devour him like beasts. They want to eat his flesh. They want to destroy him. The worst possible situation. I mean, imagine being surrounded by people and all they want to do is destroy you, to see you suffer. And even then, his trust in Yahweh casts out fear in the worst possible scenario. What is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you? What do you think that is? What do you think the worst thing that could happen to you is? And I don't mean how we often use the term, this is the worst, or that's the worst, because we minimize that, right? It's not you just got gas and then price goes up or down tomorrow and you wish you would have waited to get gas, right? This is the worst. That's not what I'm talking about. 
I mean, what is the worst situation that you daydream about or you scenarios that you've played in your head of what could happen and what would you do if that happened? And when those fears creep in or sometimes just run in, right, they don't creep in. They show up in a hurry. Where do you run to for light, for salvation, for safety? None of those things that we are prone to run to will ever cast out the fear. They may numb it for a little bit. They may make you forget about it for a season. But they will never cast out fear like our Lord does. They never can. And so we continue to look to those things to cast out that fear. But we see and we find and are reminded by David that it is the Lord and the Lord alone who can do that. And if you think that God is unreliable, that you can't possibly have confidence in him, which you emphatically can, but what are your other options, really? Let's weigh out the other options. Other people? I mean, they're going to fail you. They can't even control their own heart beating in this moment, and you're going to rely on them? to be your refuge, to be your light, to be your safety? Yourself? I mean, hopefully by now you know that won't work. Relying on yourself to be your light and your salvation? Or the mighty God, the Lord of hosts, the deliverer, our shepherd, our rock of ages, our light, our salvation, Do you know this God? Do you know the God that has been described through his words to us? Some people who spend time around the church know about God, but do not know God. One commentator wrote, they're like travel agents who get so used to talking about all these exotic locations, they begin to think they have been there. Are there some of you here that cannot say with confidence, the Lord is my light, my salvation, my stronghold? Can't even rehearse it in your mind, even when you're struggling to believe it, because you don't truly believe it. Jesus, the one that David anticipates, will eventually be called the light of the world in John chapter 8. He will be our salvation our stronghold, the one who took our sin and our fears and our doubts and our questioning and our weakness upon himself so that we could be called the children of God. So that we could have salvation and life and safety and security so that we could know the true and living God. We could know this God that David talks about. And if you don't know that God, This morning, I would plead with you to run to the light, to run to safety and salvation and refuge in the only place that it can be found. Instead of living the the rest of your life in fear, instead of spending the rest of your life trying to silence those fears with things that will never silence them. As the atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell got older, He was recorded saying that the older I get, the more nervous I become. 
And what a contrast with the end of Jonathan Edwards' life. Minutes before he died, Edwards looked around him and said, Now where is Jesus of Nazareth, my true and never-failing friend? He closed his eyes, and those at his bedside thought he was gone. They were surprised when he suddenly uttered a final sentence, Trust in God, and you need not fear. This is a confidence in the Lord, a trust in the Lord, even in life and in death. What a difference knowing this God makes for those of us who do know him as we walk through the uncertainties of life, and we all will. We all are. What a difference it makes. We can and should have confidence in the Lord, even in our difficulties. Second, there's a confidence in the Lord as you seek his face. So even though many of us may know this, we may even agree with what we've talked about so far, what we see in the psalm. Even as children of God, our hearts can grow numb to what we know is true. The fears can begin to push out the truth when we are not seeking after the Lord, when we are not pursuing the Lord. So we need to continue with consistency to seek his face, always, for all our days, seeking his face. Look at verses 4 and 8 and 11, again, kind of jumping around to different sections. But verse 4 says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Verse 8, You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Verse 11, teach me your ways, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. There's a clear aim and pursuit that David has here. He's reminding himself and reminding us what is true about God as he begins. And then out of that, there's one thing above all else that David wants. If this is true about God, this confidence in God makes him want something above anything else. I hope I'm not alone in in what I'm about to share, but as a young kid, I was obsessed with wanting to be able to fly. I don't know if anyone ever daydreamed about that as a kid, but not like in a plane, like Peter Pan, fly, okay? (laughs) Hook, 1991, Hook, anybody, come on. Hook was a fantastic movie, and I was obsessed with wanting to be like a young Robin Williams, you know, and just be able to fly everywhere. And I thought I'd be happy, I'd be able to do whatever I wanted, people would want to be like me. And ironically, another Robin Williams movie I watched a lot was Aladdin. And I hoped so many times that one day I would get the chance to meet, to find a lamp, and to be able to grant, have a, a genie grant me three wishes. And I knew what those three wishes would be, one of them would be to fly. But the other two would be all about me, right? Lifting myself up, making my name great protecting the things I loved and valued, right? My wishes would be centered on me. I know that. And even as you think about that now as adults, like if that opportunity in some crazy Disney world was presented to you, like what would your one thing be? What would you want? What would be the thing that you would ask that you think would make you so happy so powerful, so complete, have so much joy. I mean, what floods into your mind right away? What would be the thing 
that you would ask for that means the most to you? Maybe just an easy, healthy life where you die peacefully in your sleep. No pain in death. No pain in life. Maybe marriage to a certain person. Kids that look and act, grow up to be a certain way. Maybe just security in retirement or student debt to be paid off. Physical pain to be gone. What is the one thing you think you can't live without? that you would ask for a job, kids, money, family, intelligence, safety. I mean, we could list so many things. But David, in this psalm, knows what he needs, knows what he is supposed to desire more than anything else. One thing I ask for, verse 4. We know he asked lots of other things of God. Even in this psalm, he asked for other things. But everything else flows out of this supreme, fundamental thing that he asks of the Lord. This is what he wants most. There's no desire that's greater that he asks of the Lord. To see the truth and beauty of who God is. To dwell with the Lord. To know this God. To be in his presence. I've desired this thing so much, he's saying, that in comparison I've desired nothing else. He wants God. That's what David is praying. That's what he needs most and what he pleads with. And not only does he plead for it, but then we see him pursue it. He doesn't just ask for it to be zapped to him. Right? He runs after it as he asks for the Lord to work in him. And we would be absolute fools to ask for anything else. For our one thing to be anything but what we see David ask of here. But anytime we're fooled and lured into thinking that something else is actually better for us, we live as a a visual representation of what we see in Proverbs called the fool, running after these things that we think give us the one thing we need. So where do we want to be when things get hard? Where do we want to be when temptation crowds in? David wants to be with the Lord. He wants to be where God is present because that's the only place that the light is. That's the only place that true safety is. The only place that salvation can be found. He mentions specifically house of the Lord in verse 4, temple in verse 4, shelter in verse 5, tent in verse 6. The point of all these places is that he wants to be in the dwelling place of the Lord. Wherever the Lord is, I want to be there. That's my greatest desire, is to be where the Lord is. This all shows a desire and a longing to be with and to live in communion with God. Gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in in verse 4. Really, just to see the perfection of Yahweh. To see him for who he is. And, And if you search for that, it's not as if you come to the bottom of the well eventually. There will be more and more and more for you to find. More beauty. More perfection. You could spend the rest of your life pursuing that aim and you would never come to the end of that search. And we even more so than David get to see God's beauty in the face of Christ as we read the New Testament, as we know him and trust in him as our rock and redeemer. 
What we see David praying is a desire so strong and so supreme that even in verse 10, we see even if the most important earthly relationship he has or no more, he still will have confidence that the Lord will not abandon him. I think a helpful translation here, it's in the CSB this way in verse 10, is even if my father and mother abandon me, even if I lose the most significant relationship in my life, the Lord will not abandon me. I have confidence in the Lord. So time spent pursuing, being where he is, Beholding his beauty is never wasted. Even though maybe in some of those day-to-day moments it feels wasted, it's never wasted. It only presses us more and more into the truth that he defends, he keeps, he saves, he's at work. Regardless of what we might lose, regardless of what's out of our control, even in this moment, the best answer to those fears or our values being disordered is to behold, to inquire, to seek his face, to have almost an obsession with God and who he is, an obsession with knowing him. And this leads to worship in David's life. We see that all throughout the Psalms. Verse 6, he highlights that. But that is where David is satisfied, the only place he will be satisfied, and he knows that. We see this from David in Psalm 63. It should be on the screen for you. It says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So the beauty of the Lord here in verse 4 of our psalm points to whatever is sweet and pleasant. The grace and goodness seen in the Lord through what he does and who he is. Psalm 63 describes even his power, his glory, his steadfast love. That's the beauty of the Lord. That is limitless and it's perfect in all its ways. Do you want that? Do you desire that? Do you pursue it like that's true? As if knowing him is your supreme desire. If the answer is no, then there's something wrong with us, not with God, not with him. The response to us answering no to that question is not to assume that God must not really be worthy. I don't want to know him that much. The response also should not be to just wallow in our guilt and self-pity about that and think that it can never change. The response is to run to the one who is the light, to seek after the face of the Lord. To want to be where he is. To pray that your heart will be restless until it rests in his presence with him, seeking his face. To sprint to where he's revealed himself to us and stay there as often as you can. You want to grow those affections. You want God to grow those affections in you. Then read his word. Know him in his word as he's revealed himself to us. Run to places where you can be with the people of God. I know I'm preaching to the choir a little bit this morning because you're here. But we want to be with the people of God. It's not just about having these seats filled every week. It's about seeking to 
to grow and raise our affections for the living God. Run to the word over and over again. Run to the people of God. Run to places where you will see him. And he will be on display through people, through his word. Cultivate time with the Lord. You can't experience it if you aren't seeking the Lord where he informs us of who he is. So asking, why don't I feel like it? Why don't I feel like he's my light and my salvation, my stronghold, while actually not cultivating time with the Lord? Like asking, why I don't feel like I love my spouse without actually cultivating time with your spouse? It's just, the, the answer's obvious why you don't feel like you Know the Lord as your light and salvation and stronghold. Yet we still often neglect it for the pressing things, for the things in the moment that can numb our fears for a time or distract us from our fears. But David repeatedly seeks the face of God. In verse 11, David also seems to understand. Um, it says there, teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. He, he knows that to remain there, to grow in that, he has to remain obedient to the Lord. He has to know the Lord's ways. Again, we know that through his revelation to us. To walk in wisdom and obedience. So as he seeks the Lord, even in that way, reveal your ways to me, Lord, so I can walk in faithfulness and obedience, unlike my enemies. So a confidence in the Lord as you seek his face. And the final thing I want to highlight from David's confidence in the Lord is this confidence in the Lord as you wait on him. Verses 13 and 14 specifically. I know some of you don't see the deliverance yet. All of us in some way don't see it yet, but I know many in this room specifically of situations where you don't see deliverance coming yet. I know many of you are waiting. Right now, you're waiting. You're waiting for the fog to lift. You're waiting for the relationship to be restored. You're waiting for the pain to ease up just a little bit, for the temptation to, to ease up just a little bit, waiting for there to be no more tears and sin and death and temptation. Waiting. Waiting is always hard. But because you can be confident in him, because he is who he says he is, because he is our light and our salvation and our stronghold, you can confidently wait for him. So helpful, I think, when you can read a text like this and say, yes, I resonate with that. I need that. I need to be reminded of that. I need to, to let this sink down deep in my heart, in my soul, in my mind so that I remember it tomorrow. So that I can remember it today. And show me how to do this faithfully and humbly. We know daily what it's like to go from a confident faith and trust in the Lord to doubt. To fear. To go right from trusting to being troubled in, in seconds. And again, the complexity of the Psalms, I think, reflect on real life. This is where we all are each and every day, fighting against these things together as the people of God. And the Psalms lay that out for us in honesty, but yet point us where to go. 
help remind us of where to go. And that's when we, in moments like that, is when we have to lay hold of a text like Psalm 27 that says, yes, this is how life works, and we have one place and one place alone to run where hope can actually be found. Lord, help me not to forget that today. That's why every week we gather, right, to help one another. One of the reasons to help one another not forget why we're doing this throughout the week. To help one another continue to fight, have confidence in the Lord together. So this psalm closes in a very similar way to how it begins in verse 13 with a testimony of confidence in the Lord. Right, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe God will do what he said he will do, and he, his goodness will be shown off even as I live. I believe God will do it. He's trusting in what God will do. And then closes in verse 14 with a reminder to himself, and I think even a charge to us, that allows us to live without fear. How that allows us to live without fear, even that confidence as we wait on him to do whatever it is that our sovereign, good God decides to do, and however he decides to do it, wait for the Lord who will do what he has promised to do, always, every time, without fail, he will do it. There is no promise he has broken. So we can trust him. Whether or not it lines up with what we think should happen, whether or not it's according to our pace and our timeline, he will do it. He will do what he has said he will do. And we can hold tightly to that. David expects to see the goodness of God. Despite all the circumstances around him that would tell him otherwise. That would be easy to slip into fear. Even though we may not have all the scenarios worked out. We don't know what will come of this situation or this unknown or this frustration or this broken relationship. We can wait with great anticipation on the Lord. We can be strong, full of courage, trusting in our God. Not because we're able to endure it, not because we can pull up the bootstraps, but because God has done it. He will do it and he is who he says he is. We can trust in that today. And while we wait, I think one of the dangers for all of us in the midst of waiting, which is some of the hardest times of our life, right, waiting, is to believe lies in the middle of waiting. We begin to believe all sorts of things as we wait. We begin to talk to ourselves. And I think, again, David is talking to himself truth. We talk to ourselves lies so often in the middle of waiting. To let the self-talk drown out the reality. To let the things we read and hear from other people cause doubt and bitterness and frustration. But words, words from others, words from ourselves, words from things we read and see on our social media feed, they shape our perspective. I hope you understand how they shape your perspective. The things you take in with your eyes, the things you hear, they shape your perspective over time. It may be slowly but they're shaping it. Every single day you're being shaped. You and I are being shaped. So we must let his words shape us and inform us. I can't overemphasize how critical that is. I mean, we hear that from the youngest of ages if we grow up in the church. And we hear it for a reason. 
Because the word of God is meant to shape us and form us and grow different desires and work along with the spirit to make us look more like him. But yet we are being shaped by so many other things as we wait. So I would encourage you even to spend time memorizing and thinking on passages that help cast out fear, to to remember where your confidence is, to remember what it looks like to wait with courage. And I'm going to read a few now just to even hopefully encourage our hearts this morning. But to memorize verses like 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties or fears on him because he cares for you. So hurl, throw your fears at the Lord because he cares and he can handle it. So throw them to him. Don't throw it, throw it to other stuff. Don't think you can endure it. Throw them to him because he cares for you. Hebrews 13, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isaiah 40, he gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Or Philippians 4, and my God will supply every need, no exception of yours, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And finally, Psalm 55, cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And you know, I could go on and on and on. We could read passages together all day, but I know you want to go eat. But the truth of the matter is, right, that these passages, these texts, we need to hear more of that. We need to have more of that sunk deep down in our hearts and our minds when we're in the middle of uncertainties and we're in the middle of fears, then we do so many of the other things that crowd in, that deceive, that lie, our own hearts as they try to deceive us. You can see why we can have a confidence in the Lord. This is where we must go as we wait for him, as we wait on him. You and I have every reason to have confidence in the Lord this morning, to throw our fears on him because he cares for us, because he can handle them, because he's proved it over and over again. And he proved that in no better way than by sending Jesus to die the death that you and I all deserved and then raising him from the dead three days later. And as we read the New Testament we see that Jesus was even more confident in the Father than David was. He was the light of the world, our salvation, our stronghold. And in the face of Jesus, John and Colossians tell us that we see the image of the invisible God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we are to seek his face and we will live. We are to run to that light and we will live. 
We will have a hope that endures. We will be strengthened as we wait on the Lord. What problem do you think you have that he cannot handle? What problem do you think you're walking into today that you cannot trust him with? There isn't one. I promise you, the the word, the Lord himself promises us that. And he's proved himself over and over again. So may our life reflect a confidence in the Lord today. Despite life's difficulties, as we seek his face and as we wait on him. Let's pray together.